privilege to invite you to point your Bible to the Gospel of John. To the Gospel of John. I'd like to say once again good morning to you who are members, those who are regular attenders, and those who are first-time guests with us. By the way, if it is your first time here, um, please make sure before you leave to grab a, a book from the back of the foyer. There's a free book we'd like to give away to all of our first-time guests. John chapter 13 is where we will find ourselves this morning, picking up where we left off last week. I'm going to read from verse 1 all the way down to verse 17. If you don't have a Bible with you, please grab a pew Bible. There's one uh, provided for you in the pew ahead of you. We'll, you'll find our reading on page 900 of the pew Bible. John chapter 13. I'm going to read from verse 1 to 17, then I'll pray. And uh, we'll get to work. John 13. This is the word of the Lord. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wash them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now. But afterward, you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a servant, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray together. Lord, 
Lord and Father, teach us these words. Write them on our hearts. Give us ears that we might hear what your Spirit is speaking to us through these words. Help us to see the beauty and wonder of your Son, Jesus. Help us to see our sin, how we are unlike Him. Help us to see the gospel that has reconciled us to God. Help us to be made right by Him. And help us to obey the commandments that are given to us in this passage. Do this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Nowhere else do the blended lights of our Lord's superhuman dignity and human tenderness shine with such lambent brightness. Nowhere else is His speech at once so simple and so deep. Nowhere else do we have the heart of God so unveiled to us. On no other page, even in the Bible, have so many eyes glistened with tears, looked, and had the tears dried. The immortal words which Christ spoke in that upper chamber are His highest self-revelation in speech. I resonate with that paragraph written by 19th century Baptist preacher Alexander McLaren. I found that his testimony of this passage to be true. More than once have my eyes glistened as I have stared at this passage. More than once have they been dried by the Lord's words in chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. The next five chapters are sometimes called the upper room discourse, and they are among the most precious words ever spoken and among the most precious words ever written. We'll spend around four months in these five chapters. We could spend four lifetimes. If you're keeping track, this is Thursday of Holy Week. After supper in verse 2, Jesus will retire to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he will pray through the night and be arrested, where he will be tried and tortured and crucified the next morning. These are truly the last words of the Lord Jesus to his disciples. His hour, the hour of the cross, had come. And dark clouds are gathering on the horizon. Tomorrow, Jesus will accomplish the purpose for which he came. His death is hours away, and he knows it. The disciples are hours away from the greatest tragedy of their lives. The one they loved would be betrayed by one of their own. They would watch him be arrested. They would watch him be tortured. They would watch him be crucified. They would soon be scattered and shattered and scared. And they have no idea. But Jesus knows. So he leads his 12 into the privacy of the upper room in someone's home. And they prepared to eat the Last Supper. This, friends, is the discussion around the table at the Last Supper. Now, when I use that phrase, the Last Supper, I assume most of us are picturing 
Leonardo da Vinci's painting of that faithful event. And with all due respect to Mr. da Vinci, he got many things wrong in his painting. For one, Jesus is not white. Sorry, but I'm not sorry about that. For another, Jesus uh, isn't sitting on a chair. Uh, they didn't sit on chairs in first century Palestine. Dinner tables were low to the ground, and they would, they would eat reclining on pillows with their feet extending away from the table. Also, the arrangement is wrong. Jesus would not have sat in the middle. He would have sat at the end. Da Vinci had probably did many good things, but the Bible was not his best subject. In Jesus' day, uh, roads were not paved like they are today. They were dirt. And everyone wore open-toed sandals everywhere they went, which is gross, I know. Feet would have been very, very dirty. I mean, can you just imagine walking along dirt roads, the same roads that would have been shared by animals after a hard rain? Would have been disgusting. Shoes are a wonderful invention, which I take as an extension of God's grace to all of us. I mean, unless you're at the beach or living at the desert, I can see no reason to wear sandals, period. But here we are, upper room, someone's home. Jesus is there with his 12. The sun is setting. The shadow of the cross is looming and growing. And what's on the Lord's mind? Literally hours away from his crucifixion. Lord willing, we'll meditate deeply on these words in the coming months. But the first thing that our Lord wants to teach his disciples hours before his crucifixion is how to love. How to love. And he'll do so using really an astonishing example of what love looks like. Here's the main idea of our passage this morning. The humble, unfailing love of the Lord Jesus is our example. The three parts to this passage, so well as I've discerned it, and you're welcome to follow along in those three parts on the backside of your worship guide. Uh, We'll begin in verse 1 and work our way through. Should be another 40 minutes or so. First subject, the unstopping, all the way, selfless love of Jesus. We see this in verse 1 through verse 5. Take a look at verse 1. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to go back to be with the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. Jesus knew what was about to happen to him. He had foretold what was about to happen to him. He had planned what to happen to him. We've learned in the Gospel of John that Jesus is actually in control of the events that are about to happen to him. His hour had come. He was going to go to the cross, and there he would die. He'd be raised on the third day, and not long after that, he would return to be with his Father in heaven. John, the gospel writer, would have us, his readers, know this, that he had loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the very end. One communicator One commentator, rather, calls this the central teaching of John's gospel, that he loved his own to the end. That phrase, to the end, means completely, means all the way. It means without stopping. Jesus loves the whole world in some ways, but friends, he loves his own in all ways. 
This is one of the great privileges of being a Christian. That through Christ, God loves us with an unstopping all the way to the end kind of love. That he cannot love us any more than he does and he won't love us any more or any less than he does. My favorite kid's book describes the love of God like this. It is never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. I find that to be a fit description of the way God has loved me. So I wonder, do you know this kind of love? The all the way to the end kind of love of God. It is one of the greatest delights of this life and all who are trusting in Jesus Christ get to know that love. No matter who you are, no matter what you may have done in your past, all those who are depending on Jesus get to know that unstopping all the way kind of love. So I would like to tell you just a couple of wonderful freedoms that is afforded to us, those of us who know that unstopping love. First, it means that we don't have to earn anything from God because he loves us all the way to the end. It means that we never have to prove ourselves to him for him to love us. means that whatever suffering God brings us into, it is never a sign that we are being punished. It's already been punished in Jesus. It also means that we are free to give that same kind of love to others. We'll talk about that more in a few moments. Those who know this unstopping all the way kind of love are free to love one another freely. Non-Christians, this is not possible for non-Christians. They can only love people from a place of need. They can only love someone to get something from them, whether that be a reciprocated love or whether that be a good feeling. But Christians have all that they will ever need already in Christ. And so Christians love from a place of abundance, not from need. And so they're able to give love freely. They're able to give love without boundaries. And they're able to give love without stipulations. I hope you know this love. If you don't know that kind of love, the kind of love that I've been describing in the last couple of minutes, then let me just encourage you to ask one of these people that are here today about that love. I know them well enough to know that they'd be happy to share that kind of hope that they have, that kind of love that they've experienced. I hope that you do that before you leave today. Jesus loved his own completely. And in the following verses, we get to see what that kind of love looks like. Take a look with me. Verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things, and, and, and that he was good, he'd come from God and he was going back to God. He rose from supper. John says he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is astonishing 
really. In Palestinian Jewish society, there was a heavy emphasis on hierarchy, social hierarchy. Washing the feet of someone was the job for the lowest servant. A rabbi would do almost, a disciple of a rabbi would do almost anything for his rabbi. But not this. This was too low even for any free person. This was the job of a servant. And here, the exalted one, the one to whom belongs all things, the one who just a a few days from now would be seated at the right hand of the majesty of God on high, that same one stands up, takes off his coat, wraps a towel around his waist, fills a basin full of water, stoops down, and washes 24 feet with his dirty hands, with his clean hands. This week I sat here reading this passage and I tried to put into words what significance this act was and what kind of act of humility this would have been. The words were beyond me. This is one of those moments which seems to me just so holy that words would only dirty it. It's one of those things that you, the only thing you, you can do is just, just watch silence. Jesus, equal with God in power, equal with God in glory and majesty and might, became a servant who washed the mud and filth off the feet of twelve hell-deserving sinners. And as if that was not enough, the Gospel writer John is careful to show us just how incredible this act is. I don't know if you noticed it, but John mentions there are 12 disciples in there, not 11. Cornerstone Judas is still in the room. The first time I saw this, I wept. Judas had already decided in his heart that he was going to betray the Lord. Jesus knew it. And Jesus washed his feet. Jesus slipped the sandals off his own traitor's feet, the very feet that would, in a few moments, carry him to betray him. And the sinless hands of Jesus washed his dirty feet. Those same sinless hands which would soon be nailed to a cross were washing the feet of the person who would put him there. Here's why that's important. Because I'm like Judas. Because you're like Judas. Because like him, we have betrayed Jesus. For our own 30 pieces of silver. For our own 30 minutes of pleasure. 
It wasn't the nails, you understand, that held Jesus to the cross. Nails don't hold the Almighty God to anything. It was his commitment to display the unstopping, all the way, selfless love of God. That's an uncomfortable kind of love. I suspect everyone in that room, being quiet, were probably uncomfortable. But only Peter has the guts to speak up. Verse 6. When he had come to Simon Peter, Simon Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus said, what I'm doing you don't understand right now, but afterwards you will understand it, Peter. You shall never wash my feet. And then hear the words of the Lord. If I don't wash you, you'll have no share in me. And Simon Peter said to him, then Lord, not my feet, but my head, my hands, my body everywhere. And Jesus said, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. All of you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. So Peter objects. Peter's always impetuous. He's kind of put your foot in your mouth kind of person. And he says probably what everybody in that room was thinking. You're washing my feet. You'll never wash my feet. I got my feet dirty. I wash my own feet. I serve you. You don't serve me. Let's not be too hard on Peter. I find this to be the true response of free grace that everyone experiences when they first see it. It's uncomfortable. Having someone do something so tender, so selfless for you, it's uncomfortable. Some of you won't let someone into your house to do the dishes. Some of you would be uncomfortable if you found out someone came into your house to do your dirty laundry. Yesterday, I was in the basement working on some drywall, sanding drywall, the thing I hate to do the most in this world, almost as much as I hate plumbing. And I come upstairs covered in dry, drywall dust, miserable, complaining to my wife. And, 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 she, and I, said, I had said something like, um, I wish I would have just, just hired this out. I wish I just paid someone to do this stupid job. I hate it. And uh, she mentioned me asking some friends. Why didn't you just have some friends over and kind of have them help you? I would never do that. I would never do that. This drywalling is an easy job that I can do myself that is miserable. I will pay someone to do it, but I won't let someone do it for me for free. Why? Because pride runs deep. My pride runs deep. Truly selfless love is uncomfortable. Jesus forgiving our sins in the abstract, that's one thing. But Jesus forgiving specific, ugly, personal sins that we hide from everyone, friends, that's almost unbearable. Deep down, I think there, that we entertain the notion that there are parts of us that Jesus doesn't see, doesn't want to see. 
There are part, there, there's dirt on our feet that his hands won't reach. This sin is my sin. It's my fault. I clean it. I'll pull my feet back because I don't want you touching me there. If you have ever felt that, if you've ever felt the Lord move toward you in that direction and you pull back, allow your eyes to fall on what the Lord says in verse 8. If I do not wash you, you will have no share with me. Peter, this is the only way you will have a share with me. Peter, this is the only way you're going to be made right. I wash you. You can't do this yourself, Peter. Unless we have our sins washed by Jesus, we will have no part with him. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, that word is for you. Apart from some evidence that you've been washed by Jesus, had your sins forgiven, and that you're living for him, you should have no confidence that you'll have any part with Jesus or that you'll go to heaven at all. No amount of niceness or helping others will be enough because your life has been covered in dirt, sin. And the only way to have your life clean of that sin is by coming to Christ in faith and repentance. Verse 9. Simon Peter said, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. And then Jesus says this, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he is completely clean. And you are clean, um, meaning you all are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was betrayed him. He's speaking of Judas. So if you are in Christ, friend, you are completely clean. Completely clean. And just want to let you know that, that so that you're encouraged. That your standing in Christ is completely clean. You're not being made clean. You are clean. Of course, that doesn't mean that Christians don't sin. Certainly, Christians sin. That's sort of the point. Walking dirt roads in this life, your feet will get dirty. It just means that your standing with God is secure in Christ. That when you came to the Lord Jesus and said, save me, I can't save myself, save me. He wraps you in the white robes of his own righteousness. And when you stand before God, that's all he sees. It means that as a Christian, because you've been made clean, you keep coming back to him to be cleansed again and again, repenting of sin as you pick it up in this world, as you give yourself over to it, humbly 
submitting yourself to the water basin of the Lord and His loving hands. That's true of all Christians, but it's not true of all churchgoers. So I want you to lean into these, these words for a few moments here. Because sadly, though all Christians are made completely clean, it's sadly true that it, it's probably not true of all of us here. Jesus said, you're clean, but not every one of you. I should probably remind you, Judas had been with the disciples at the same amount of time as he had been with Jesus, the same amount of time as all the other disciples. All the benefits that all the disciples had received from Jesus in spending almost three years with him was true of Judas. Don't forget also that when Jesus commissioned the disciples to go and to preach the gospel and to lay hands on the sick and to cast out demons, friends, Judas was with them. Picture in your mind the 12 disciples, all the disciples that Jesus had sent out. Picture in your mind they're going into Israel, they're going out throughout the land, they're preaching the good news of Jesus, and they're laying hands on sick people, and the sick people are getting well, and then they're casting out demons, and demons are fleeing in the name of Jesus. And now picture Judas laying hands on sick people, and picture Judas laying hands on demoniacs, and demons fleeing. It's a powerful thing to be reminded again and again through the word that though a person maybe do wonderful things for God in God's name, that does not mean that they're a Christian. I'll remind you of Matthew chapter 7 when the Lord told the story of those at the end who were confused why they're not going to heaven. And they say, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do good things? Didn't we lay hands on the sick? And Jesus said, I don't even know who you are. On the outside, Judas looked like all the others. He looked just like the 11. But Judas had never opened his heart for the cleansing hands of Jesus to wash his sins clean. His heart was hardened and closed against the Lord he never came to him in repentance. The love of money, the love of position, the love of the things of this world had kept his heart from being broken over his sin. He was not clean. Lord willing, we'll look at that a little more closely next Sunday. Verse 12. When he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place. And he said to them, do you understand what I have done for you, done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, then you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, so that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is what love looks like. This is love. 
Jesus is our example. And he tells the disciples, I'm your teacher and I'm your example. This is, this is how you love one another. With a water basin and with towels. You call me teacher and Lord for, and you're right for so I am. And the Lord was teaching them what it looks like to be a Lord and teacher. Jesus was showing them greatness. This is what greatness looks like. It's giving, not receiving. It's serving, not being served. It's dying for others, not demanding from them. So the Lord is our example and ambition. And he tells his people to do as he did. Do just as I have done. You see, not only did Jesus invert, plainly invert the role of disciple and teacher for his followers, he expects his followers to do the same for each other. This would have been a a dramatic shift in their paradigm. Culturally, it would have been upside down. The disciples, if you remember, are often concerned with position and rank, even among one another. And the Lord is showing them how they are to love one another. This new shift, this new way of loving one another would become the primary sign that people would know that they are disciples of Jesus. If you remember, if you skip down to verse 35, you'll you'll find the Lord saying this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So it's this self-sacrificial, role-reversing, Christ-like, selfless love for one another that when a Christian shows another Christian, the world looks at them and says, that's a Christian. That's the mark of being a true Christian. Self-sacrificial, role-reversing, Christ-like love. I want you to see something back in verse 1. And then also down in verse 3, John points out something significant about Jesus. Verse 1 says that he knew the hour had come for him to depart and to go back to be with the Father. In verse 3, it says that he knew God had given him all things, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. And then notice how John connects this knowing to Jesus' self-sacrificial role-reversing love. Knowing who he was and knowing where he was going led him to wash the disciples' feet. Now, why is that important? Because until we know who we are and where we are going, we'll never be capable of truly selfless love like Christ. Until we know the dirt has been washed off our feet, We'll never be able to wash the dirt off of one another's feet. As long as we're connected to and concerned with our place in this world, our love will always have conditions. As long as we believe that we have to earn God's love, we'll always put limits on our love to others. You see, because if we think that 
If we think that we had to jump through the right hoops in order to get right with God, then we'll make others jump through the right hoops to get us to love them. But when we realize that God gave us love that was undeserving, even ill-deserving, then we become free to give free love to others that they don't have to deserve, that doesn't have boundaries, that doesn't come with conditions. Only until we know the true freeness of grace will we be able to give that grace to others. Jesus knew he was going back to the Father, that God had given everything into his hands, and so he gave everything. Don't you see how it's the same for us? Those who are truly aware of the glory that awaits them in heaven are free to give everything for God's sake. That's what it means to be a Christian. To love freely. To give lavishly. And to spend ourselves completely in order to see God glorified and His church built up. How do you know someone is a Christian? You look for love like that. So if you're not doing that, if you survey your life and you don't see anywhere in there that you're really spending yourself to see Christ formed in someone else, you should probably repent. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm just saying maybe you don't know what it means to be one. Just repent and start discipling. It's really not that hard. You want to know how simple it is? Thursday afternoon, three o'clock, Kyle and I met for coffee, talked about how we're doing, opened up the book of James, looked at some things that God had showed us in this passage. Rejoiced in who God was in this passage, talked about sin a little bit, prayed together, planned to meet again. He discipled me, I discipled him. It's really that simple. It looks like Matt Flora calling me and asking for permission to take my son and his son out to lunch, where they talked about the Bible, talked about God's grace, commended the gospel to each other. It's really that simple. If you're not doing that, just repent. Start doing it this week. As we close, there's two things I want to, I want to, two questions I want to answer that kind of arise out of this passage. Two questions, and then we'll wrap. The first question has to do with whether or not foot washing is meant by the Lord to be an ordinance. Uh, meaning something that is perpetual, that the church should do over and over and over again continually. The second question is, uh, how do we do foot washing today? How do we do foot washing? So I'll take the first one first. Um, Is foot washing a perpetual ordinance in the same way that communion or the Lord's Lord's Supper or baptism is considered a, a perpetual ordinance? Meaning, does, does Jesus expect us to physically wash one another's feet on routine, on occasion? My answer to that question is no. Here's some reasons why. Verse 15, the Lord says, do just as I have done, not what I have done. 
indicating that this is symbolic more than it is physical. Um, furthermore, when the Lord um, washes Peter's feet, he's saying, if I don't wash all of you, so it's having more to, less to do with just physical action of washing feet and more to do with a cleansing. Furthermore, we don't see foot washing practiced anywhere in the book of Acts by the apostles. Washing the feet of the, feet of the saints is mentioned uh, by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5, but even there it seems that he's, he's being metaphorical more than uh, literal. I don't think the disciples understood this to be an ordinance, and I don't think they understood it even to be physical. It's not wrong to do. Many churches still practice foot washing. It's a wonderful thing. I just don't think it's a perpetual ordinance. The second question out of this passage is, if it's not physical, but the Lord does expect us to do as I have done, how do we wash one another's feet? What does it mean to wash one another's feet? Well, I think... um, there are some not, there's, there, there's no direct corollary in some places. I mean, outside of a few, a, a spattering of a few hippies, most of us wear shoes, keep our feet relatively clean. So washing of dirty feet might not have a direct corollary. But what does it mean to do just as I have done? Here's my answer. Any act of self sacrificial, role-reversing love that we show to one another is like washing one another's feet. Any act of self-sacrificial, role-reversing love that we show is how we walk out that commandment. It's possible the Apostle Paul was thinking of this when he told the Galatians, bear one another's burdens, And so fulfill the law of Christ. We bear one another's burdens. Where the world might have a proud, critical spirit to point out one another's weakness and failure, Christians display a Christ-like, self-sacrificial willingness to help, to encourage, to build up one another, to provide for one another, to bear one another's burdens. Christians move towards Jesus, and while they're moving towards Jesus and growing in maturity, they're looking towards others. I think one of the turning points of my own spiritual life came when I heard a preacher say, when you come to church and you hear the Word of God, it was never meant to stop with you. It was always meant to flow through you. And I think that's what the Apostle Paul is getting at here. As we're moving towards Jesus, we're looking towards others, encouraging them, building them up, carrying them alongside us. That's one thing that we attempt to do here at Cornerstone with our church membership. We look out for one another. We lay down our lives for one another, as we're told in 1 John chapter 3. We exhort one another daily, as we're told in Hebrews 3. We confess our faults to one another. We pray for one another, as we're told to in James 5. We wash dirt off of one another in the same way that Paul did to Peter in Galatians chapter 2. 
We wash dirt off one another in the same way the Corinthian church washed the dirt of sexual sin off of their brother who was sleeping with his mother-in-law. This is why many of us meet throughout the week to study the Bible, to pray, to encourage one another, to confess our sins. Just this last Wednesday, we had a a handful of precious people into our home. We opened up the Bible. We were reading the scriptures. And some of the folks there were sharing how they, had, um, they were struggling with sin of gossip. We were able to talk about that, talk about how gracious the Lord is to forgive us of gossip and to help us get through that. It was a wonderful time of confessing our sins and rejoicing in God's grace in our life. Living Stones are basically just putting you into a room with your brothers and sisters and giving you an opportunity to take off your coat, to wrap a towel around your waist, to fill up a water basin, and to wash one another's feet. Whatever the Lord creates us to be, whatever the Lord creates this church to be, whatever the Lord creates this army to be, may we be an army not of guns and swords, but an army of water basins and towels. Amen? Let's stand to our feet. We take a moment at the end of our, of our, our time together to confess our sins to the Lord and to ask for His forgiveness. We understand that the Lord has been gracious to us this morning in communicating His love to us through His Word. And this has exposed some sin in our life, and we're just going to ask the Lord to forgive us of that sin. So, if you would, please pray with me the prayer of confession. Great God of all power and might, there is none like You. You are God. We are not. You are the God of all glory, and through your Son, please hear our prayers. We recognize, Father, you have spoken to us today in your word, and we thank you for the mercy that you have shown to us in giving us ears to hear your word, eyes to read it, and I pray that we have truly heard you and truly seen you. In Jesus, we have seen how you have loved us freely, graciously, completely. It humbles us, Lord. In Jesus, we see the selfless, humble love of God. And like the disciples, Lord, we have been exposed, laid bare by it. We confess to you that we are so like Peter pulling back from your love. And so we ask that you would forgive us. Help us to believe that unless Jesus washes us, we will have no part in him. Will you help us to submit to his sinless hands? Will you enable us to sit motionless and quiet, trusting you as he washes us? Lord, keep us from the prideful religious notion that we can make ourselves clean. And we ask you for your grace so that we can do the same thing Jesus did for us, for one another.
Will you enable us, your people, to be the people of the water basin and the towel? Will you teach us Jesus' example? How he looked to his place in heaven and washed his disciples' feet. For those of us who are here, Lord, who are not right with you, will you make them right with you? For those that think they're right with you, but they're not, will you expose their not rightness with you? Will you reveal their sinful hearts and cause them to depend on Jesus and be saved? And for those of us who are here who are not currently involved in discipling, Lord, convict us. Draw us to repentance and enable us to spend our lives for your sake as Jesus spent his life for ours. We thank you for this too. For Jesus' sake, in Jesus' name, amen.